Hi, Brad. Hey, Jonah. When'd you come in? I just walked into your apartment. The door was open. Oh, yeah. That we Sometimes that's the case. Yeah. So, um, uh, you in the neighborhood getting donuts? Yes, I was in the neighborhood getting donuts, and then I'd come by and say hi. Yeah. I live near the donut plant. Oh, yeah? Did you actually know that? Did you no, know that? I didn't know that. Do you Is know about the donut, donut plant? plant? It's the best donuts in the world. Really? Yes. I should have pointed out we walked right by. Maybe I'll go on my way home. If you go to the donut plant, get tres leche. Okay. I'm telling you. It's the What is that exactly? It's it's the best donut they have. And I only get cake donuts. They have cake and yeast donuts. You know, yeast are like Dunkin' Donuts style, like puffy. Okay. Get the cake donuts. Cake donuts. Get just get tres leche. Just trust me. What does that mean translate to? Three creams. Three creams. Or three milks. Okay. It's delicious. Okay. And if you but if you really are feeling like maybe chocolatey, you can get I'm not blackout. usually a chocolatey guy. Blackout is good too. You know what? I might get one because I have something to celebrate. What's that? And so do you. <laughs> I believe this is the 250th episode of Going Off Track. Oh my God. Is that true? I'm pretty sure it's true. Oh, jeez. Let me see. Check. You can double check Please. it. Did we start this intro without knowing that? Yeah. We started it and I just... Ah, oh, this is totally 250. Yeah. I was, <laughs> I was doing some math in my head. Hey, congratulations. That's a pretty big milestone, right? Fuck yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. So we really should, I really should get a donut. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll walk over there and yeah, get a donut. We should do you. it after this. Get a coffee, a donut. A couple shots. A couple shots. <laughs> yeah. This is the 250th episode. Um... I can't think of a better guest. <laughs> uh, Harley? We, we didn't pla- we didn't plan this out, but uh, yeah, today's guest is uh, Harley Flanagan. Uh, you may know from the Cro-Mags, founding member of the Cro-Mags, uh, which is a which is a big resume, man. Big resume. He also was in the, the Stimulators when he was very young. Um, Harley's War. He's done solo stuff and. Uh, Last year, he wrote a book, an autobiography called Hardcore, Life of My Own. And uh, it's a really amazing book, kind of about his whole story growing up in New York, growing up in New York being in bands. Eventually, uh, he became, you know, sobered up, was became a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And now he teaches for the Renzo Gracie Academy. And uh, I've been trying to book one with him forever. And I had done something with email at Rubber Tracks and... Harley was just like hanging on the couch because he was doing something, which got announced later. He's working, um, he's working with Madison Square Garden's organist on a song called "Let's Go" that will be played at MSG sporting events. And yeah. he co-wrote and sang the song, and he was tracking stuff for it at Rubber Tracks. And I was like, "Are you Harley?" And he was like, "Yeah." I was like, "Hey, I'm Joan." He's like, "Oh," and he's like, "We've been emailing," and then he had some downtime when they were like mixing, and I was like, "Me and Emo were like, do you want to just like do a podcast with us?" And he was like, "All right." And he stayed for like an hour yeah. and I felt bad because I hadn't read the book yet because I didn't know that this was happening. And then I read the book afterwards and it's incredible. And I highly recommend the book. It's great. I breezed through it. Um, it's good that we took this time between recording and releasing so that you could catch up. Yeah, it is good. But uh, yeah, Harley, really amazing guy. I follow him on Instagram now. Uh, so yeah, just, you know, New York hardcore legend. Definitely. Some of the craziest stories. The amount of crazy shit in this book is unreal. I mean, it's like every time you go to a show, there's like a fight or yeah. a riot or someone gets thrown <laughs> through a window. It is a totally different New York than the one I'm used to. Yeah. That's why I stopped going to those matinees. I can imagine. <laughs> but uh, just the stories are incredible. And it's uh, his wife helped him write it. And, and uh, just there's so much like the stories are so vivid and well written. And, uh, it's really cool. It's a really great book. So I highly recommend checking out Hardcore Life My Own. Obviously, Cro-Mags, Age of Coral, all these you know New York hardcore classics. Check them out. And thanks to Emil Amos uh, from Grail Ohms and my other podcast, Drifter Sympathy, for guest hosting this um, without any notice either. <laughs> uh, it just was one of those serendipitous uh, rubber tracks moments. You had to seize the moment. You yeah. did. Yeah. When you got Harley Flanagan sitting in the next room... And you got a couple mics set up. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? So this, this is exactly what we did. (laughs) You can hear exactly what you're going to do. Here's Harley Flanagan on Going Off Track.
Arlie, thanks for coming by. This is, we were just talking outside. I've been trying to get you to come by for a while, and then you're just magically appeared. Yeah, it's pretty crazy how that happened. Uh, you're here in the studio right next to where I am uh, tracking a song for the New York Rangers at the yeah, moment. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. How's it going? It's going great. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, a lot of things happening. Um, my book's been out for like two weeks, and uh, it's already going into its second pressing. And um, I just got roped into doing this song for... Not just the Rangers, but uh, I, I believe they're going to be soliciting it to the Giants and the Knicks. It sounds like it's going to be pretty much a New York anthem, and uh, I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, that's amazing. And we were talking earlier um, how you used to live in this area. Yes, I, I lived in Williamsburg. I, I've I've lived in just about every part of the boroughs. All the parts that were really bad, I was... Uh, I live. I was one of the early white invaders <laughs> to all those uh, treacherous neighborhoods, whether it was the Lower East Side or, or the South Side of Williamsburg or the Bronx. And yeah, I've pretty much lived in all the the rough areas. I mean, how do you sort of look back on that? Because I feel like that era is so romanticized now, you know, but, but mostly by people who weren't really around then. Uh you know. I had fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the, it was definitely a different world back then you know uh i had a great time would i like my children to grow up the same way i did uh, absolutely not but um you know it, it was the wild west it, it, it was a lot of fun though you know there was a certain element of danger that that was uh exciting and fun you know it was very conducive to art and music i think that's why there was so much going on back then uh, in the city you know musically and artistically do you have a good memory because i feel like obviously you started playing music when you were so young i mean do you remember a lot of those early oh, yeah, times because it seems I, in the book it's so detailed yeah man i don't know I, surprisingly you know despite all the damage i've done to my brain uh, I have a very good memory, and um, in the book, the, the few things that I was a little bit shady on, like dates and stuff like that, and uh, I would cross-reference, you know, I would check with other people who were there, you know, ask my family, ask friends of mine, and so on, and just to confirm, you know, that I was right, and yeah, no... I remember too much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things I wish I could forget. I mean, what what was the process for, for writing the book, uh, uh, Hardcore Life of, Life of My Own? Yes. Um, you know what? I pretty much just started putting down all of my memories. And um, I actually started writing the book in the late 90s. And uh, I was more or less just documenting what at the time seemed like my demise because i was in the 90s i was doing a lot of drugs and i was pretty much living on borrowed time you know i was really screwing up pretty bad and um and to such a level i mean i was really out of my mind and so i started writing it all down because i figured you know i wasn't gonna i figured there's no way i could live for too much longer like this and i i knew that if i didn't write it down and you know if anything would have happened to me somebody else would tell my story and and i knew that they would get it all wrong so i figured you know i had better start writing it down and that was pretty much the beginning of uh of how this book started coming together you know i remember i was thinking i was reading like the jaco pistorius book and stuff like that and you know i met him several times in uh in the neighborhood back in the day and, and a lot of different musicians who were very influential and, and also very self-destructive who sadly never had a chance to tell their own story. And I just wanted to make sure that I didn't uh, wind up in that boat, you know, having some journalist or somebody else tell my story later. So I did it. What neighborhood were you essentially from? Like, what, where was Jaco from? Where were you from? Well, I used to run into him on the Lower East Side and, and over on the West Side and, and Washington Square Park and, and stuff like that. But um, I grew up on the Lower East Side for most of my life. 
I have lived all over the place. I lived in Europe when I was young, and uh, that's where I first got into punk rock in the 70s. And then when I moved back to the States and again in the 70s, I was playing at clubs like Max's and CBGB's that were all pretty much the, the spawning grounds for all that early punk stuff and the legend is you were like were you you were like 10 or something yeah man you know i mean if you look in my book you'll see pictures of me with warhol and and the clash and debbie harry and all these people when i was you know 11 12 years old and stuff so i mean i was definitely one of the youngest oh forget one of i was the youngest person on the scene back then there's really <laughs> there's, there's no question were you like protected by the older crew in, in any well, way yeah yeah you know i mean yes and no i mean everybody was so deranged back then you know i mean that max's era of punk rock you know i mean christ i remember one of the first memories I, that i have of max's is like johnny thunders stumbling out of the dressing room with a needle hanging out of his arm you know asking the bouncer if it's time to go on stage yet you know and I couldn't have been more than 11 or 12. So, I mean, it was madness. You know, you had all kinds of drug addicts and people like Jane County running around in drag and people like Andy Warhol and just all, it was total freak show. But you know? no, like, you, any predators that would kind of come out of the woodwork and you were yeah, like... you know, uh, not really. No, I didn't have that problem. I mean... I, I was also a pretty tough kid, you know, by the time I was like 14 or 15, I wasn't somebody to mess with, you know, because I grew up in a pretty hard neighborhood and, and, and actually the punk rock aspects of my life, you know, being at Max's and all those places, that was the easy stuff, you know, dealing with the gangs in my neighborhood and uh, and all that type of stuff, that was the hard stuff, so, you know... Like I said, it was a very different city back then. When you said you were kind of exposed to punk when you were in Europe in the 70s, I mean, how, yeah. how did that, who were some of the bands, like, how did you, because I imagine it wasn't easy to kind of find that stuff back no, then. No, it really wasn't, and um, I got to give my mom props for that, because uh, she was in London in 77, and uh, she went into a record store and asked them, you know, what's the current thing that kids are buying up, you know, I want to pick up some records for my son, and, and uh, she came home with the Sex Pistols, Nevermind the Bollocks, and uh, the Damned's first album, as well as a bunch of singles and stuff. And that pretty much put me on a path, you know. I, I was already a musician, and I would, I would have probably wound up like a funk or jazz player had my mother not uh, got me those records. Because I remember the first records that I purchased with my own money w was like, you know, Herbie Hancock. Uh, Secrets and uh, uh, Stevie Wonder, um, music in the key of life and stuff. I mean, I was and I was listening to a lot of Bob Marley. I was on a totally a, a different path. I mean, I was always into Hendrix and the Who and stuff like that. But but then the Sex Pistols just came along and uh, changed everything. You know, that was it for me. I mean, was there sort of when when sort of the New York hardcore thing started? I mean, was there? Did you feel there's a lot of community sense between the bands at that time? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it was a smaller scene and, um, you know, punk rockers and hardcore kids, you know, it was more or less the same back then. You know, we pretty much had to stick together, you know, because uh, we were always targeted by other people. You know, if you were going to a show or coming from a show there was always a good chance that you were going to get jumped or fucked with on the way there or coming from you know and the, the lower east side was a pretty rough neighborhood and it was it was mostly puerto rican so we really stood out and we used to get in a lot of fights with the locals and so there was a certain uh you know camaraderie on the scene where even if you didn't really like someone you still had their back right when shit went down you know, and, and over the years, as the scene got bigger, it seemed like people started fighting amongst each other more and more. And and also, you know, New York is such a soft city now, and and it got soft so long ago that, like, I think the hardcore community kind of, in an attempt to keep living up to that tough New York image, they they started 
fighting each other since there was really no outside enemies anymore. You know, it's like you can walk around with tattoos all over your face and stretched earlobes and a mohawk. Now nobody's going to say shit. Right. Back in the day, you would have somebody would be, hey, faggot, you would have got jumped, you got your ass kicked. So there was a certain sense of community on the hardcore scene. We had each other's back. Now we're not really targets anymore. So now, now you get people at hardcore shows who think they're tough guys who are, you know. Whatever. I don't right. know shit about it anymore. I haven't been part of the scene in, in quite some time. Yeah, what do you sort of, like, where, where would you sort of, where do you put most of your energy sort of now? I mean, obviously you're still making music. You wrote this book. I mean... Dude, I, I uh, teach jiu-jitsu. I'm okay. a black belt under Henzo Gracie, and I teach jiu-jitsu at his academy on 30th Street six days a week, and I'm very busy doing that, but... You know, I'm still always writing music. Uh, I'm in the studio recording not just this thing for the for all these New York teams right now, but I'm going in uh, at the end of the month to work on another record for myself, uh, and I'm now doing an audio book version. So, yeah, I'm, I'm keeping very busy, you know. I got two kids, and I'm married. I mean, it's like I'm, I'm a pretty busy dude. <laughs> you know? Are people from the hardcore scene, like, have they kind of seeped into the sports scene where's the connection I, with dude that? i didn't know there was a connection man i got my, my friend uh chris who i actually just met recently you know he knew of me through chromags and through my music and he wrote a song for the rangers last year and reached out to me when uh him and ray castaldi who's the keyboard player at msg they they've been collaborating on some music and Chris suggested that they pull me into the project because he just he was hearing my voice over the track that they were putting together. He's like, I think this would sound really good. So he reached out to me, and there was no hesitation, no second thought at all. I'm like, dude, count me in. I'm like, I'm there, you know. So this is exciting. I mean, I figure I've written a few hardcore anthems. I, you know, I'll give it a shot and write some sports anthems, you know. Definitely. I mean, when did sort of your interest in jiu-jitsu start? Uh, doing that my my in interest it? started with UFC 1 and UFC 2 when I saw Hoyce Gracie taking these big dudes and like arm barring them and submitting them and choking them out. And I'm going, what? I'm like, you know, I mean, look, anybody who knows anything about me knows I've had a few fights in my past. Uh, I used to fight a lot when I was young. And I've punched people, I've kicked people, head-butted them, elbowed them, whatever. But I had never seen anything like an arm bar. I had never seen anything like a, a triangle choke. You know, I had never heard of these things, and I didn't know what the hell he was doing. And when I saw him doing this stuff, I said, man, oh, if I ever get a chance to come in contact with one of these Gracie dudes, I'm going to start learning this shit. And uh, Enzo moved to New York, I think, in 95, the end of 95, and I met him in uh, January of 96, and I've been uh, training with him ever since. So I've been with him for 20 years now, and I've been teaching at his academy for the past going on seven years now. My friend did an article with, I think it was with one of the Graces, I think it was him where he showed them how to do the rear naked rear chug naked and, and chug, put yeah, him yeah. to sleep in like two seconds. Yeah, man. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful art. And, uh, you know, you learn how to do that without actually causing any permanent injury to the person. I mean, it's like very technical. It's really a, a graceful, beautiful fighting system. And, and to be honest... You know, when I first got into it, it was all about the fighting aspects of it, you know. That's what attracted me to wanting to learn it. And But in my 20 years of doing this, it's not anything about fighting to me anymore. It's 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 just the, the love of the art itself. I, I love to teach. I, I'm very blessed. I, I get to teach kids as well. I run the kids program. So for me, it's really... Uh, uh, it's very gratifying. You know, I love the relationships that I've made through jujitsu. I have the utmost highest respect and love for Master Henzo Gracie. He's like a, a mentor to me. I, I really feel like he saved my life in a lot of ways and, and changed my life by giving me this art. And um, I love the guys I work with. I mean, it's such a it's it's been a life changer for me. So 
you know, there's no turning back. I'll be doing this when I'm, you know, an older old man, you know. <laughs> I mean, how do you sort of prevent getting jaded? Because it's like you started in New York, it got kind of soft, like you started hardcore, that got kind of commercial. UFC is obviously like a huge thing now. I mean, like, how do you... I used to of... fight on the underground, too. I don't know really? If you know that. Yeah, in the Underground Combat League. What was that like? Uh, I was... <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was a difference, you know, it was, not, it was way more uh, raw than UFC because, like, well, headbutts were allowed, you know, gloves were optional, you know, you could elbow, you know, people in the back of the head, you know, pretty much there were really no rules. Uh, and and it was underground, so there was really no proper medical and so on and so forth. So, but yeah, it was fun. I, I can say that I was a part of that too. Yeah, that's amazing. You I mean, what, with all this stuff kind of changing and getting more commercial, like what keeps you from just being like, "Ugh, it was so much better when I used to do it." Uh, you know what? Life is uh, always changing. You know, things are always going to evolve, and and I'm always finding new things to to keep me. I, look, I got kids, man. I, I I'm watching their them grow and 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 i'm married i have you know I, life is great you know I, I i ain't worried about the past i mean you know every every generation is like oh it used to be so much better but you know what life is what you make it life is what you're living now and and honestly i'm i'm happier now than i've ever been in my life you know I, i'm in a much better place than i've ever been did you have sort of like a turning point where you, you know, you said in the 90s, you, you know, it's some issues yeah, of drugs. I was, yeah, and that I kind was of, a fucking mess back then, you know. What sort of had you, made you kind of turn your life around? I mean, was there one thing or? There was a few things. I mean, you know, a lot of it's in my book, you know, I, I don't want to give it all away, right, but right. you know. I don't want to give it away either, yeah, but I'm trying but to. But, you know, one of the real game changers for me was um, having kids changed everything for yeah. me, really, because I mean. You have to be more responsible, you know, you have to think about the consequences of your actions and stuff. And, uh, you know, you'd like to think that, that, that everybody who has kids changes for the better, but sadly we have seen that's not always the case, you know, but for me, it, it changed me a lot. Cause I mean, for, for starters, I, I never had my father in my life. He he spent more time in jail than he did out of jail, and he died before I ever got a chance to really get to know him. So that makes me want to be uh, involved with my kids. And, and the fact that I grew up as fast as I did, and I didn't really have as much of a childhood as I should have in a way, you know, um, that made me change you know it comes a time when you have to be responsible definitely do you sort of keep up on like current like hardcore bands and that kind of nah, stuff or you kind of just... I, I don't yeah i don't you know for a number of reasons the main reason is that i don't want any other outside influences to accidentally influence my songwriting like i i i have made the mistake of accidentally stealing riffs from other people without even realizing it and then been like oh shit that sounds an awful lot like so you know what i just avoid it yeah. and, and and to be honest i think most of it's pretty redundant it's like i you know when you see, i saw the bad brains in the old days i saw minor threat you know i saw black flag when you know i saw all the bands that mattered when they were really like laying down the the, the the rules you know when they were laying like this is how it's done you know what all those bands that really set the standard i saw them play so i don't really care about seeing some 20th generation hardcore you know no disrespect to the new bands i mean i'm glad that they're keeping it going but you know when you get to be my age you'll get it <laughs> are there any bands that you didn't see back in the day that you wish you had because it seems like you saw pretty much everyone uh, the only band i could think of off the top of my head i wish i saw that i didn't is the sex pistols yeah you know i saw everybody else you know the stimulators were supposed to play at max's uh one weekend that sid was playing there after the pistols but unfortunately he died before that gig gig happened so did you ever see any of the Gigi Allen shows here? No, I didn't. I had no interest. Yeah. I, I, to me, he was just a, a disgusting waste of oxygen. 
you know and uh, in fact i remember one time we were playing a lot of clubs that he had played uh, the week before and i i went and bought all new microphones for myself and i brought them <laughs> with me to every show i wouldn't use any of the fucking house mics or the gear that they had that he had used i was like yeah, i don't want to touch anything that was on stage when he was here but uh you know whatever yeah what's I, I think Stiv Bader's was much more interesting and, and less disgusting, you know? Yeah. It was like, you know, what do you, 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 know, you can only take crazy and gross so far before it's just like, dude, ugh, like, you know. What about those sort of, I know Bad Brains sort of helped you learn your instrument and that kind of stuff. I yeah. mean, what were, what were those kind of early Bad Brains or those Bad Brains shows like? I mean, because uh, I've seen video. Uh, un, but undescribable. Yeah. You know, because again, you know, it's one thing to see those videos now and have all this other stuff to look at and look on. But back then, that was like, you had never seen anything like that. First of all, you had never seen four black dudes, like, come out and play, like, the fastest, most ridiculous, insane punk rock you had ever seen. But they were so tight, and they were so good, and it, it, so explosive. I mean... I remember seeing them play one time at A7, and mind you, A7 was probably only maybe three times bigger than this room we're in, which is not a very big room to <laughs> you listeners. And, uh, I mean, within the first 30 seconds of the first song, HR had, like, jumped up in the air, punched a hole in the ceiling, fucking sheetrock everywhere, bent the mic stand in half. Like, I, I mean, how the fuck you bend a mic stand? I mean, and this was within the first, like, 30 seconds of the first song. It was just like, bah! I was like a fucking bomb went off on stage he was just it, he was hands down the most intense front man i've ever seen i mean if you could picture you know james brown meets johnny rotten meets bob marley uh on crystal meth like you know i mean i can't even i can't even put it into words it was uh he was unstoppable and you know, forget about daryl and earl as far as a rhythm section and dr no was like you know it's like the Thelonious Monk on fucking guitar over here, like playing sick rhythm and then just outlandish leads, that, you know, like badass. Yeah. So you don't know. What did they, you started as a drummer, right? Yes. And you were, did you, did you just immediately be thrown into the fire and you were just on yeah, stage? Yeah, yeah. I've been, I've uh, been gigging practically since I learned how to wipe my ass. You know, I've been on stage so long, I can't even, I think my first, the first punk gig I did was like in 78 or 77, but I had already been out there playing, you know, since I was probably nine or 10 at bars and, and stuff and clubs. When you were sort of seeing all these shows or playing playing these shows kind of early on, I mean, did you know this is something special where you're just like, oh, these are just the local bands playing in where I live? Cause it's hard to have a that little bit of both. It's really yeah. hard to have that perspective, especially as a kid, you know, mm -hmm. because you don't have a lot uh, of experiences to fall back on. I just happen to be having a lot of really grown-up experiences, you know. But uh, as a kid, you don't know. You don't know that you don't know the life you're living is is as crazy as it is, you know. Until you get a little older, and hindsight, you're like, damn, yeah. What was sort of your favorite spot to live in New York? Was there a particular... I, I loved growing up on the Lower East Side back yeah. in the old days, you know? It was a special neighborhood. You know, I lived in a building growing up with, like, Allen Ginsberg lived on the fifth floor, Richard Hell lived on uh, the, the sixth floor, and uh, Luke Santi, the uh, writer, very no, well-known writer, lived next door to me. I mean, the whole building was pretty much... A lot of really uh, influential creative people i mean and it was a it was a great great experience it was a crazy experience and a lot of crime a lot of drugs down there a lot of you know but i i wouldn't wish i wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy but i wouldn't fucking trade it in for anything yeah know? i mean like I mean, obviously, it's such a big issue now is gentrification, that kind of stuff. Yeah. As uh, you've seen it, do you think that's just sort of what you're saying, or that's just kind of a part of... Uh, it's a part of life, change. man. Yeah. You know, things change. You yeah. Know, every, things change. And, you know, it sucks 
you know, for the for the poor people that got to keep uprooting and moving and moving and so on. But you know, nothing stays the same. And uh, besides, you know, in another fifty, sixty years, most of New York's gonna be underwater any fucking way. So you better find some place new to move. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. I mean, when it comes to you writing your own music now, I mean, do you have like a do you set aside time or do you just Dude, pick I it pick up? Pick up my instruments all day long. Yeah, I, I'm playing my. Sometimes I'm playing my bass till two, three in the morning. You know, my wife's in the other room. Oh, are you still up? I'm like, yeah. And you know, I just, I that's, I, I can't stop. Yeah, it's it borderlines on psychosis. You know, I'm always writing. Did, did you, did you, you always know that you were going to be like the the creative, the dude that was going to write the songs, or did that? When did that turning point happen? You know, I, I it's kind of, I, I it's really hard to say when that happened because even when I was playing drums in the stimulators, I was helping create the structure Arranging. of the songs and the, yeah. and the arrangements and stuff. And that was when I really first started examining the bass and and trying to come up with melodies and stuff. Because it was such an important instrument in yeah, hardcore. You know what? I I always had, I've always been, had the the mind of a composer. So I really switched to bass just in order to express the ideas and the thoughts I was having. And then even at that point, I was still playing drums when I first started putting the Chromax together and I kept teaching my songs to other bass players, excuse me, and other guitarists and, and and I and then I would lose the bass player or I'd get a new guitar set. I finally I got sick of teaching people how to play, essentially, you know, because it got to a point where I was becoming a better bass player than the guys I was auditioning, and I got sick of teaching people songs. And finally, I said, "Fuck this! I'm switching to bass." And then uh, we approached Mackie, who was playing in this band called Frontline, as well as this other band called Urban Blight, and he wound up taken over the drums and then i stayed on bass and that's all she wrote i mean as far as age of coral goes i mean what did you guys kind of know that that was going to be sort of a classic record when you made it or Who the fuck knows that when yeah. you're making a record i mean you know no i had no idea i was just excited to get the opportunity to record an album you know we had at that point only put out the cassette we only put out 500 of them you know and uh we didn't even really have the money to do that. My guitarist's father put out the 500 cassettes for us. You know, I mean, us getting a record deal was uh, unimaginable. And uh, never mind touring and, and seeing the world and, and, and having the impact that we had. Um, I'm very, uh, I'm proud of the imprint that we left. Uh, I'm, as much as I am embarrassed by what the band became and, and is now, I, I I was very proud of what we were. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what have you thought about right? I mean, obviously the book just came out. You said it's coming to another press. I mean, what what would you would you like to write another book? Maybe like about something else? Did you enjoy the process? You know what? I I don't. I'm not really a writer. I'm not a book writer. This was this was easy in the sense that all I was doing was telling my story. I didn't have to make stuff up. It's the same with my lyrics. I write from my experience. I'm not the kind of artist who can sit and make stuff up, you know. That so fortunately, I've had a lot of experiences to to write about, you know. But um, what the hell would I write a book about? You know, I could, yeah, you know, I could sit here and make up stories and stuff, but that's not me. That seems like the genesis of of hardcore too. Is like I imagine. I mean, we can all kind of picture the experience of being thrown into like a bar band scene but then was it like you mentioned pretty much the big three in a sense like bad brains black flag minor threat when you when you perceive that there's like an ideology happening you know what i mean was that like did you did you sort of perceive like was that like a galvanizing moment when you realized that like music could be about the truth and shit instead of just like a loud sound you know what i mean uh, it, you know what? It's funny. That's a good question because for me, um, I always thought that hardcore was kind of like the blues or folk music in the sense that it was American 
storytelling. It was uh, the sharing of one's experiences, you know, and uh, the, the when I first uh, felt the responsibility factor to write lyrics with meaning, um, believe it or not, it came to me from uh, Black Sabbath, from Masters of Reality. Uh, I don't know if I was, you know, if I'd been eating a lot of acid that week or what, but I just remember some of the lyrics on that album making me say, you know, damn, man, you know, you you have to have a message, something meaningful, because otherwise it's just noise. Like, and and I didn't really have a political agenda, and I really, you know, I didn't believe in this or believe in that, and I was really on a, in a sense, on, on a quest for some sort of personal enlightenment, you know? And so there's a lot of heavy lyrics on there, a lot of, like, spiritual lyrics, a lot of lyrics dealing with real religious uh type of things, you know, have you ever thought about your soul, can it be saved? There's a lot of heavy-duty lyrics on that. I was probably like 15 or 16 when I heard that, and I was like, wow, this is this is deep. Like, So that, uh, that helped put me on a path uh, lyrically. But up until that point, all my lyrics were about like street fighting and, and like getting in trouble and fights and stuff and, and, you know, survival of the streets, living in squats, living in burnt out buildings, you know, stealing to eat. You know, that that's all I knew. Which is still like raw. Well, honesty. yeah. See, that's yeah. why I say it was very much like folk music right. or, 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 or blues in the sense that this was this was my pain, my suffering, my mm-hmm. my my passion, my my love, my heartache, whatever it was that I was experiencing as a human was getting expressed through my music. Yeah. It wasn't pop. It wasn't like, you know, girl, you, uh, 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 yeah. you know, it wasn't all the other 80s bullshit that was happening. Then, yeah. You know, Madonna and all this, you know, all that cheesy fucking shit that was happening musically. I felt that what we had was, you know, it was genuine. Yeah. You know, it was, there was some something to it. There was a, there was some angst and some genuine suffering that helped make it that art and then then i got the bug from sabbath where it was just like you know there's got to be more to this you know Mm -hmm. i mean there's got to be more than just survival of the streets there's got to be more than stealing to eat and fighting and and that's when um you know that's That's evolution yeah, yeah that's exactly you know I mean, were Chromags embraced outside of New York quickly? Oh, dude, we, yeah, dude, it was like every fucking where we played, we like, when I was talking to Anthony Bourdain, he was like, he pointed out, he's like, I would imagine that you guys had the same type of effect when you were touring as like, you know, the Ramones did in the early days as far as like everywhere you play, you know, even if there's only like 10 people in the crowd, you know, those 10 fucking people went home and, and started a band because they were just like, whoa. Uh, yeah no we uh again i was very proud of what we did you know and um you know life goes on definitely and obviously anthony Bourdain wrote the uh yeah. the jack of the book and that kind of stuff have you guys been friends for a long time well he uh saw me play in the stimulators back in the 70s really? so he's known who i am for a long time i actually never met him up until um just a few years ago and i met him through jujitsu i'm actually his daughter's instructor and his wife is really into it too right yeah the whole family is is into it he's (laughs) been competing and um he's a great guy and uh really nice really interesting to talk to you know there's not a lot of people i can talk to that have equal or more experience than i do you know He's a little older and he's been around. He's seen a lot of things, so I, I enjoy his company. How do you do? You just like, hey man, I wrote this book. Like, do you are you interested? Like, was because I've always wondered how that process worked. I guess I'm sorry to like get like a, someone to write something for your book. Oh, uh, like, you, you know just, what? Like, I did, it was the, I. I came to him when the book was almost done, and I said, I, "Would you mind taking a look at this and give me your thoughts?" I just, you know, because we had become friendly. And he's like, yeah. sure, sure, yeah. So he read it, and he came back to me and said, I think this is a really great book, you know. Gave me some feedback. And then uh, 
Then he was talking about me on a podcast, and he started talking about, like, you know, yeah, the stimulators and blah, 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 the chrome eggs, his mom, this, his aunt, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, shit, this guy's, like, giving me all kinds of props. So I asked him, I was like, you know, is it cool if I use a, a quote or, or something from that interview you did? Because he started, like, tweeting stuff about me and just being really supportive. And I asked him, can I use a couple of these quotes, man? And he said, you know what? I'll do you one better. If you want, I'll write the blurb for your book. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> pow, Duh. you know, so yeah, man, you know, thank you, Tony. <laughs> That's what I think is so cool about the book is like, obviously, we, you know, people involved in music or punk know who you are. But to me, like the book, it's someone, someone could be at Barnes and Noble who doesn't know anything about it and pick it up and, you know. There's so many connections to pop culture. Well, just his name alone, you know, right, you right. know on the cover helps, you I'm know. Sure. But um I mean you were around for all these moments that are sort of legendary that not pivotal many moments. Yeah. Firsthand. No, I mean, you know, and, and I really did try to make this book not just my story but like like a a, a bird's eye or fly on the wall view of New York and New York culture and the the experience of being here. I tried to make New York like almost a character in the book and the, and the history of it because uh, to me that's more interesting than the than the hardcore parts of the book or the chromag parts of the book. I think the whole picture is really what's uh, fascinating, you know, because. Outside of hardcore, who gives a fuck about hardcore? And outside of Chromex fans, who gives a fuck about the Chromex? But the story itself is much more interesting than that. That just happens to be a, a, a part of it. Right, right. And we're finally here at this like point that we never could imagine where like there's books being written and we're like archiving the whole culture and, and it's it's kind of disappointing that like people it's such a crease it's such a like obscure piece of american culture so now maybe people can see it as a folk music because to us it was a folk music it was like a communal like ripping down the barrier like direct honest yeah. like yeah, yeah. like the old folk singers yeah, like yeah. we're taking the newspapers and just like hip-hop you know yeah, you're yeah. just telling people the truth telling the truth totally yeah so it's cool that it's come to a point where like this is all being splayed out for like other people who thought it was this obtuse thing you know well the people who were doing it back then are, are all getting older i mean you know i'm 49 you know we're, we're not kids anymore and, and now a lot of the people who were fans are now you know out there you know they have real jobs and they're working behind the scenes you know they're you know they're i mean hell i got pulled in to do this thing for the new york rangers i mean you know, the people who are now running shit, a lot of them shared those same experiences that we did growing up back then. So it's just, uh, it's full circle, you know. Now it's time for that stuff to finally come out. And it's also the perfect time for it, too, because everything is so, it's such a cut and paste world now. Everything is so processed and people have really lost touch with um, the the continuum you know that flow that went from through history from the blues through to rock and fo or you know folk like that whole lineage of things kind of uh morphing and 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 growing like punk rock turning into hardcore and it, like you know now it's just like google cut paste process right. sample you know people have lost that um They've lost the the knowledge of, of, of it's like sure you can Google it and get the info, but you it doesn't taste the same. So people, you know, I think they're hungry. That's why that's why people like Bourdain are so popular right now because he's showing everybody what's real. Right. This is real. In case you've forgotten, this is real. You know, so, you know, it's kind of cool that I'm being recognized as one of those people who, like, represents realness, you know, because God knows there's a lot of fake motherfuckers in hardcore, especially over the last 20 or so years. It's just, you know, it's just a lot of posturing, a lot of bullshit, you know, fake tough guys posturing, screaming a bunch of bullshit, you know, 
but because I'm from back in the old days, I I still have a clue. <laughs> yeah, I lived with before he passed away. I lived with three months with Arturo Vega. Oh, I, I knew uh, him very well. Yeah, on Second yeah, and Bowery yeah. in the loft. And, yeah, uh, I've been there. I remember the old days. Yeah, there with Ramones and everybody. Yeah, I was curious if you had because I yeah I mean I lived there like right before he passed, like maybe yeah. like a few months before. But yeah, yeah, I mean that place seems so legendary. Just, yeah, he was a good guy. He was a great guy. But he would we would just talk, and he would be like, I you know he obviously designed the logo, and yeah. he was like, I designed the idea of the concert shirt before that. People just bought programs at concerts. It was such a yeah. Wild... It's funny, you know, people make these. Uh, contributions that take on a life of of their own you know that but um yeah man well it's great to just uh to still be active and still be making music and uh, you know and people are so still so interested in what you do i mean i feel like not many people have that kind of longevity i guess do you think it's just because what you've done is kind of so honest i guess or who knows? <laughs> Dude, I have no fucking clue, man. You know, I teach jujitsu. I don't know. <laughs> and do a lot of your students sort of know your whole backstory? Or are they just like some of them. Just, just some just of them. Like a, you know, I try to keep my my past out of my job. Yeah. You know, do a you, lot of people know, but I keep it on the on the down low. Do you think jujitsu is sort of? I think it's also a lot of people are intimidated by it. I mean, do you think if people are interested in it, they can oh, just come man, out? Jiu-jitsu if they're just like is a the beginner. Most, it's it's such a beautiful thing, man. There's no reason to be intimidated by it at all. I, I one of the jobs I have is I I give all the intro classes. I introduce people to jujitsu who've never trained and who've never done it before, and it's it's uh, it's a beautiful art, man. It's like it's like physical chess. It's really the, a lot of. Um, mental work as well as physical work it's very stimulating you know and um one should never be afraid to try new things and, and physical things and, and jiu-jitsu is not so much about strength and uh and, and uh you don't need to be super super flexible to, to start training or or super athletic you just need to try and practice and 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 it, it it's just a lot of fun it changes your life it changes it forever did it change your life absolutely i've made some of the best friends i ever have had in my life through jujitsu tell you man you get you, you there's there's no better way to make a friend than choking the shit out of someone <laughs> <laughs> or, or getting choked by them you get to know each other real quick but that uh, almost seems like like some greco-roman shit you know, <laughs> you know it's it's awesome it's a, it's a great life and uh i i and everybody should give give uh your local jiu-jitsu academy a visit and just try a class you know all women should train all women should know how to defend themselves against men and uh everyone should put their children into learn because they'll learn a lot about not just uh self-defense but how to carry themselves in life you know yeah i've been i've been taking martial arts and i do feel it's helped with my confidence when i walk down the street i'm looking up more and more where my surroundings well, I also feel a lot less uh, defensive now. I mean, last time I almost got in a fight on the subway, these two guys uh, started, I had a little exchange with them. And uh, first thing I'm thinking is, okay, I'm going to punch this one in the throat and I'm going to throw this one on the track. And then I'm like, guys, you know, I'm just trying to get home. You know, have, have, have a good night, man. I mean, uh, you know, whatever. And I just, because I realize, you know, my life is good, man. I don't need to be lured into a, a confrontation. I don't need to be... These guys are still going to... They're going to wake up tomorrow and their lives are still going to suck. So I'm not going to allow myself to be uh, pulled into stupidity. You know, I, I'm confident in who I am and what I do. And life is too good. You know, who needs to fight unless you really need to fight? You know? Life is a fight already. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, so obviously we made the intro. This has happened very spontaneously. I obviously wasn't in the room because I, I, this was right at the end of Rubber Tracks. I had a lot yes. going on. Yes. And uh, this would have been a good one for me. Harley and I have, I, we're not, definitely not friends. And he uh, may not even remember who I am, but we've we've revolved in the same circles for a couple decades, and so I could have really offered a, a, a little bit of extra insight and probably brought up some funny 
I'm sure you questions. could have. You always do, Brad. <laughs> so I feel, I feel I bad. Mean, but I, don't know, I don't know how we could have made it easier for you. We did it at your job. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, you couldn't have made it any easier. That's just how, that's how slack I am, man. Put it right in front of me. <laughs> uh, well, it's a story of my life. No, I hear you. I hear you. Um, and if you want to hear the story of Harley's life, check out his book, um, Hardcore Life of My Own, published by Feral House. Uh, it's available now. Great book. Obviously, check out all the Crowbag stuff. Age of Coral, Best Wishes, Stimulate. I mean, yeah, check out all this stuff. Follow him. His Instagram's really cool. And if you're into jujitsu, you can study with him at uh, the Renzo Gracie Academy. Yeah, that's pretty epic. Yeah. Yeah, it is pretty epic. Um, and if you are done supporting Harley and you want to support us, you can uh, Venmo us at Off Track. Um, if you see the name Brad World pop up, you know you're on the right track. Uh, you can also leave us a positive review on iTunes. You can tweet at us at Going Off Track. Tell your friends about us. Um, just get the word out. Get if, the word out, if man. You, if you work for a company that would like to advertise on a podcast, you can email us. Uh, you can email me. I'm very easy to find online. Um, so, yeah, any way you guys support this podcast, with money or without, we really appreciate it. Thanks so much for to Harley for coming by. Um, so glad it worked out. And uh, Thanks, Emil. Thanks, Emil, for guest hosting this. Thanks to his publicist, I believe Maria, set, helped, tried to set this up. And um, I really appreciate everyone's work. And yeah, thanks everyone for supporting us for 250 episodes. Yoo-hoo! Yeah, that is 250 hours, which is uh, 24 and hours congratulations to you, Stephen, Mike, Benny, everybody who's helped. Yes, yeah. Couldn't have done it without you. Could not have done it without well, any of our other hosts. Know, and especially, by the way, <laughs> could not have done this without Brad. And all of Brad's technical knowledge, I, I would be recording this in my living room for no one. Play, record. Yeah. So thanks to everyone who's helped Going Off Track last this long. Um, we have a bunch more awesome episodes that we recorded at a, at a great new studio called Pulse. And uh, yeah, we'll stay posted and more Going Off Track in 2017. Next week. Bye. shit how did we not figure that out i was doing my math i was like all right we did 248 this week